Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the environment minister says a decision on carbon pricing isn't coming for at least two years. Wasn't this an election campaign promise? With the one-day strike over, what has been accomplished by Ontario secondary school teachers? And 40 years ago, the Who played Cincinnati and people died due to general admission seating. Forty years later, they returned to Cincinnati. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the Environment Minister says that his uh, decision on carbon pricing isn't going to come for at least two years, which is surprising considering neither the province or the country are on track under this scheme to meet their official targets that they are supposed to hit. Um, And odd, again, especially since such a stink was made about this during the election campaign, uh, specifically that the Conservatives didn't have a plan, and, you know, obviously the Liberals did, and it was involving carbon pricing. However, we're finding out that uh, Canada's uh, Ecofiscal Commission issued a report uh, last week saying uh, Canada can hit its emission targets but only if the carbon price is quadrupled to $210 a ton uh, in the next 10 years. And they also say that's the most economically way to get there, um, as opposed to forcing cleaner burning fuels or subsidies or helping Canadians buy electric cars. Uh, that costs a lot more off, uh, and often a lot less clear to people than actually carbon pricing. So if you want to get and reach those targets with carbon pricing, this is how you do it. And they say to, uh, $210 a ton by 2030. However, this doesn't say how to hit the target and, and keep yourself secure economically. And we have to remember that about this study and, and how we move forward in trying to solve this because there is a transitionary period here whether the advocates want to admit it or not. And that's I think where the gray area is for a lot of Canadians and wonder what is going on and how we're going to move forward and what it will look like. Let's bring in Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track. They monitor CO2, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use and on the line now. Steve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always glad to be here, Scott. So your thoughts that the uh, Environment Minister says that a decision on carbon pricing isn't going to come for at least two years, I guess that's good news for those that don't support this. But what about for those that do? Uh, This was such a massive election campaign. Why are they putting this off? Uh, I think that just uh, Alberta is their their main problem. If they they really go the carbon tax route, if they do anything close to what the Eco-Fiscal Commission uh, is recommending, yeah, they're not going to be very popular in in, uh, Alberta. pretty big swaths of the country, so I think they're kind of dialing it back on the carbon tax, which is kind of, uh, as you as you noted, it, it, was a, it was a big part of their uh, federal campaign, and now it looks like they're completely uh, waffling on the issue. It's kind of surprising that they won't even consider uh, going past 50, which does, uh, you know, as, as, as you and I have discussed, Scott, uh, a couple times, uh, $50, you know, it's 20 today, it'll be 50 in 2022, that does nothing to... to compel any kind of behavior. Uh, 220, uh, which is what the Ecofiscal, or 210, 220, what the Ecofiscal Commission is recommending, it does. The pump price in, in Hamilton today is uh, for gasoline is about a, a, a 108. Uh, you know, $200, 220, 
uh, carbon tax brings that up to dollar fifty four. Now I'm starting to uh, consider how much I'm going to drive if I'm paying that much for per liter of gas. So that does have a uh, an impact. But what the federal government is 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 now rejecting is uh, moving past, or it appears to be considering rejecting, is uh, moving past even fifty, which doesn't have it doesn't do make it move the dial at all in terms of uh, changing behavior. Uh, are we fooling ourselves here? Um, carbon pricing, everybody says that's the way to go, that's the way to go, that's the way to go. We pay a couple of cents extra for a litre of gasoline, even though it's not making a hill of beans difference, it makes us feel good. And to quote Kathleen Wynne, are we bad actors here? Well, exactly. It, it, it's it's a uh, um, more of a, uh, a formality and a sort of a posture it's got some posture value and it's virtue signaling, which is a term that's in vogue these days. But that's pretty much what it is. Uh, we're we're doing something. We're paying some money. It's not enough money to make us, you know, change our behavior. And and uh, but the the very fact that we're doing this, you know, makes us better than those bad deniers who say that this problem is not even happening. And and that's kind of where the uh, debate is shaken out to. But you're right. The carbon tax, uh, if, unless you put it to what the Eco-Fiscal Commission recommends. And let's uh, also point out, Scott, and as you and I have also discussed many times, in Ontario, for, you know, the only, the, the low-hanging fruit in Ontario is, is uh, space heating, uh, that even going to $220 a ton for carbon is not going to close the gap between uh, natural gas-fired heating and electric heating. It's, you, you'd need to go to $900 a ton tax. And if they're not going to go to 220 <laughs> How much less are they going to go to 900? So it's the the idea of a carbon tax. You need a technological solution to this. You need to generate power without emissions. That's that's the uh, the only way to actually handle this problem. And a tax is a very roundabout way to get there. Uh, we've often had the discussion on this show, Steve, in regard to transition, and I I, I can't seem to get any politician or anybody to e- even Elizabeth May when she was on here prior to the election asking her what the transition period would was would be like what is the next day after a green government what is the next day after we decide to quadruple the price to 210 what will life be like for people how were the how will their lives have to change why don't we seem to be having that discussion well because it's just such an unpleasant discussion it's it's basically uh, if you know if this the uh, 154 let you know let's go back to hamilton and the and today's pump price and then Slap a two hundred twenty dollars carbon tax on. Okay, it, you know, uh, it costs you and I dollar fifty four to fill up our cars. Uh, it also costs everybody else money to uh, ship groceries into Hamilton. Uh, to, you know, and everything else that, that that the city requires to. So everything, the cost of everything goes up, and this is what just kind of apop- apocalyptic. This is a, a, a very terrible scenario. People are struggling today, and uh, we've got a insipid. $20 carbon tax, you know, make things just ridiculously expensive. And, and this is kind of like a nightmare. So nobody wants to talk about this. This is the, the, the limitations of the carbon tax approach to climate change that I've been shaking my head about for, for the whole time. It's just uh, uh, we, we need to, you know, make everything ridiculously expensive. And, and, you know, we already did that with Ontario Electricity. And, and that's, you know, that, that uh, cast the government out of power. And made them, you know, they're not even an official yeah. party in the legislature. Yeah. So th- this is, uh, it's, it's, there are ways to get at this. You need to make bulk energy cheaper, 
and uh, no party wants to discuss how you go. Yeah, I found it very fascinating that uh, Kathleen Wynne wanted to get everybody onto electricity by making it the most expensive form of energy (laughs) there is. I mean, it was just, go ask all the people in rural Ontario who are now burning wood, burning stoves and propane as opposed to electric heat of the 70s and 80s. Um, You know, everybody was was piling on the conservatives because they were against the carbon tax. But, you know, you, you hit a point here. The, the the liberals just positioned this, the, you know, they're not going to make the targets. They're certainly not going to talk about raising the uh, price of carbon enough to actually make it worthwhile. But ba- but basically, they won the election saying, well, we're still doing more than them, which is really just lip service and making us all feel better while we climb into our SUVs. That, that's all that it is. It's, it's, it's posturing. We're at the we're at the point in this in this the development of this issue of the issue of you know, Western countries and how they're going to respond to the issue of climate change. We're in the early stage of it now. We're in some sort of, you know, some, some future psychologist is going to say this is the denial stage. There's the posture stage where you do ridiculous, uh, meaningless actions like uh, put in this uh, small carbon tax and then pat yourself on the back in public and win elections on that basis. But, yeah, it's, it'll be very interesting to see what happens when we get to actual meaningful policy. We're certainly not uh, anywhere close to there. So uh, you said, you know, there's other ways other than uh, taxing people to death. W- what is your vision here? What do you see? Well, the, what you, you touched on something that Kathleen Wynne said. There's, there's, there's a part of, of what she advocated that I absolutely am 100% in agreement with, and that is that we have to electrify things. Where, we, where I disagreed with, with her and, and, and the, the people that she followed is, is in how you go about accomplishing this. Uh, we need to... Uh, um, electrify everything that we run on fossil fuels today, so transportation and heating, and that's done with bulk electricity that's zero carbon, and you and I both know that that's nuclear. So that's uh, what's going to have to happen in Canada and, and elsewhere across the Western world, in fact, across the entire world, if we're going to meaningfully reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And, you know, when the conversation gets towards that, that I'll be, I'll be encouraged that we're heading in, uh, you know, at least heading in the right direction. But that's uh, that's the cold hard truth of of how you're going to do it. There's no we can't we can't electrify any further with hydro in this province. We've tapped our hydro out, so there's one alternative left. We have to embrace it. Steve Applin has been with his publisher of Emission Track, monitoring CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Steve, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Take care. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg, a former Liberal MP and uh, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, uh, getting information from the Liberals, this was a massive election camp uh, issue, uh, certainly a major pillar of the Liberal campaign um, in, in regard to uh, fighting climate change and the carbon tax and such, and we're very much vilifying the Conservatives for, um, for, for not stepping up. And really, at the, at the end of the day, in order for this to even work and for us to hit our targets, uh, carbon pricing up to 210 a tonne within the next uh, 10 years or so, and we have the Liberal government saying they're not going to look at any of this for another two years. Uh, it seems like they're stepping back on all of this. Well, I think they are trying to insert the word affordability. I think they rightly realize that the uh, next couple of months when the parliamentary budget officer comes forward with uh, what the first uh, version of carbon taxes imposed on provinces like Ontario and uh, Saskatchewan and, of course, uh, Manitoba and, and New Brunswick, who said no or reverse their position by popular consent, that is by an election, 
um, they may very well find that uh, this isn't really what it was meant to be. In other words, even at these lower thresholds of uh, $20 a ton, uh, we're already seeing evidence of the fact that the rebates didn't work. And in fact, uh, telling signs, of course, in the cost of living rising everywhere, I think your previous guests alluded to, uh, cost of living, uh, cost of groceries, cost of a lot of other products. And we're not even near what the Eco-Fiscal Commission uh, designed, of course, to uh, really serve as uh, economic cheerleaders for more carbon taxes. Uh, put it in perspective, if we're going to $210 uh, a ton, uh, get ready to pay $0.54 cents a litre more here in Ontario. Get ready to spend about $0.64 cents a litre more, $0.66 cents with HST for diesel, a little higher for aviation fuel, and of course propane and natural gas, you're looking at an extra $1,000 a season. So assuming, of course, you're using about uh, 2,000 uh, cubic uh, meters a year, which is about the average size of, mid, uh, of, of a mid-sized home uh, in much of Canada and here in the uh, GTHA. So I think what's really happened here is that there is a, a recognition uh, both the Liberals physically do not have the majority, so they can't be uh, as cocky as they once were, but they also realize they can't be bending about the word affordability when many people are feeling rightly uh, they're squeezed. Uh, we're seeing bankruptcies on the rise. Uh, we're seeing a slowdown economically, and uh, things are not as well as uh, as they seem, Scott. And I think for that reason uh, that the Liberals are uh, possibly trying to punt this down the road a little further. Maybe they can get a majority. Who knows? Uh, but if you're going to try to squeeze $210 or more per ton carbon tax by 2030, uh, there's a lot of pain that's being uh, that's being sort of uh, delayed, and that's that's been my ongoing mantra for a while, especially up uh, leading up to the the last election, talking to leaders and such. Nobody seems to want to talk about how we get there or what that transition period will look like. As you said, Canada's Eco Fiscal Commission says it's got to go to two ten a ton by 2030. That's to meet the target, but can we meet the target and be secure economically? No, and we can't meet the target either by this uh, pie-in-the-sky idea of 100% electrification or zero carbon. Uh, you know, I, not only, I, I think, others, experts you've had here before discussed, you know, the only way to go ahead is nuclear, and it's not new. We've been around uh, the nuclear reactors, which were in my old riding, uh, going back to the mid-1960s. Uh, it's one thing to have production. It's another thing to have distribution. And as we've seen with ice storms and other inclement weather, whether we like to call this uh, because of climate change or not, uh, the reality is that uh, unless you have alternative forms of energy to backstop your uh, uh, your electrical grid, uh, you're in big, deep trouble. And the cost to electrify our entire economy is in the several trillions of dollars. So we're in no position to do anything like this. And I think sooner or later, perhaps in the next four or five years, there'll be better scientific data demonstrating that Canada can't make a difference even if it wanted to and that Canada is in fact a carbon sink and perhaps we'll start to have a little bit more objectivity from our scientists and I'm not talking about pseudoscience and uh, political scientists uh, in the sense that they're uh, very very trying to push a partisan message but that there may be competing reasons for why we're seeing different changes in the weather of course we're a lot more sensitive to it now uh, we have a greater population uh, and we have the ability to, de- to detect more than just a couple of days ahead not often with great accuracy but i think over the next few years i think the debate will widen as to uh you know really what is behind the push on this uh, particular subject to raise prices on everybody uh it seems to me that uh, uh climate uh, you know uh, issues have now gone to from from the sublime to the ridiculous and i you know when you see the kind of uh, you know, uh, end of the world, doomsday, almost cultist type of approach 
uh, it makes no sense. And I think that's why I think we need do need the next couple of years. Perhaps the Liberals are getting a brain finally and realizing maybe we shouldn't go at this so hard. There really is an, an upside to this for Canadians. Um, the uh, Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkins, uh, Wilkinson, said that uh, they're in no hurry to do this. They're going to review it in two years and then see where to go. Uh, he goes on to say, we're committed to review carbon pricing as we approach, uh, approach 2022. We plan to do that for sure. It's part of the plan. But I would say to you, carbon pricing is not the only tool in the toolbox. No. We're going to use a whole range of them to achieve this in a way that ex- ex- is acceptable yep. and works for Canada. That sounds like it's something from coming from another party, not the Liberals. That's what no, the Conservatives like, uh, said during the election campaign. Yeah, regulations are going to kick in. He's also bringing in the clean fuel standard. Remember, this is, uh, you know, while they may not make much emphasis and realize this is really hammering consumers, they're going to find other creative ways to go after business emitters uh, and, more importantly, uh, go after uh, the uh, fuel production. Uh, they've already made uh, it clear they're not going to change uh, pipeline distributions in Canada. Uh, it's pretty obvious, I think, to most that uh, they're quite willing to have the United States backfill our needs for fuel. Um, But it looks like we're heading in other different directions as far as uh, raising prices. The fact is, when you have a carbon tax, you know, having an effect impacting people, driving up the cost of living, that's one thing. But if you have on top of that emissions, industrial emissions regulations, and then on top of that, Clean Fuel Standards Act, you're talking a triple whammy of, of of effects on an economy in a very short period of time that will have one of three effects. One, drive business out of Canada. Two, uh, drive down the number of people working in any sector, including uh, the technology sector. And number three, raising the price generally uh, of cost of living for everybody. So there is no win for the Liberals. And they finally had to realize uh, this election just wasn't about the West saying enough is enough. It's, It's that many consumers are finally starting to say, uh, maybe it's time that we rethink, uh, you know, the two to three parties out there that uh, are coming up with very creative ways of, you know, uh, doing the jig and dance and song about the environment and climate, but not considering the fact that it will have no effect on how the climate changes, especially if we believe and we are real, you know, true believers in this kind of thing. Uh, what's this going to do to stop China uh, from, you know, building another 550 coal plants over the next five? Well, that's years? it. We Are seem to be we seem to be fighting this by province by province. You know, even though we only admit like 1.6 percent of the world's uh, pollution, you know, like this is absolutely insane. We should be using Canadian clean energy to try to get the world off coal and create a a, a total global. Uh, plan here and then use the profits into research and renewable and electrification. Does that not seem like the common sense answer here? It is, but not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The United States is meeting its objective exactly. of climate by uh, by simply going from coal to natural gas. Well, good Canadians did that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. There's another aspect to this too, Scott, that I think if the federal government and the liberals really wanted to be smart and get a lot of people back on board with them, they'd say, hey, forget this nonsense of punishing people. Why don't we use our tax base? Why don't we use our tax incentives to say, if you are a company doing the following, rather than giving you the stick on the head, we're going to give you a carrot. We're going to drop your taxes. We want to create a magnet for your type of uh, technology such that we won't just incentivize you. We won't even tax you. If you can create those kind of leading-edge technologies, low-zero carbon, whatever you want to call it, technologies, you have an open friend and, and, and ear of the Canadian government, and mm. we're going to make darn sure that there is no jurisdiction in the world that is more attractive to you 
as an innovator than right here in Canada. So, you know, they got it really, they, they put the cart well before the horse here. And I think, unfortunately, it's leading a lot of us to the conclusion that the government really has no other solution than to go beat up a few consumers and hope that they can, you know, get their friends and their allies and among those who are the opinion leaders in this country to say, well, if you don't pay a carbon tax, you're somehow a denier. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. 127 News on the Way. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, teacher strike one day over. Ontario secondary school teachers, secondary school teachers were out Wednesday on a Wednesday strike. Everything back to normal today as they continue. Uh, no chatter at this point of uh, future uh, uh, walkouts or anything of that nature. Uh, we'll see what happens as things develop over the next uh, week or so. So where are we at now? How do we move forward? Let's bring in Charles Pascal, Professor of Applied Psychology and Human Development and Special Advisor to the Dean University of Toronto and with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm on a moving train, so... Uh... <laughs> Just like peace in our classrooms, I'm a moving target. There you go. All right. Your thoughts after the one-day strike. What's gained? Uh, what's the objective here? Well, the objective is to, uh, you know, let the government know that the uh, those who represent the, uh, the teachers are serious, uh, that um, uh, this is a situation that has been fomented by the, uh, the cuts that have already been made. I mean, one of the... The biggest challenges for the government is that um, among your listeners and the people of Ontario, everybody knows uh, students who've been in the classroom, uh, teachers who've been in the classroom, and the lived experience over the last number of months uh, has seen uh, a rise of uh, the number of, of students in the classes, uh, the lowering of the ability of teachers to adapt to uh, the needs of, of more students. Uh, the loss of uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of courses that students need to uh, uh, graduate or at least uh, apply for uh, colleges and universities. Uh, so the difference in this particular uh, warning to the government is the public at large already knows uh, who's created this. So it's a, it's a difficult situation. And I guess the other thing I would say, Scott, and this is important, um, uh, the minister... Um, who needs to tone it down a little bit uh, and show just a little more respect for the process, uh, keeps uh, uh, portraying the issue, the main issue, is compensation. And it's not. And the reason he's doing that is the public at large can resonate with, you know, everybody asking for more money in a difficult circumstance. But the main issues are class size and, and the other related issue of e-learning. Uh, compensation is not the deal breaker. Uh, we had yesterday, we had um, both the head of the Secondary School Teachers Union and the Minister of Education on and, and gave them an equal amount of time to talk about what their points were and such. And as I'm listening to this as a 57-year-old man and as a student who went through it in, as a teenager and now with kids in uh, elementary and secondary school, watching them go through it again with both uh, with both different uh, 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 teachers' unions and such. Um, the only thing I'm seeing, the only common denominator I'm seeing here is 
it's the same argument every year in the yeah. sense in the sense that you know the the union is positioning that it's always for the kids and never about wages and the government of the day is positioning it's not about the kids it's all about wages and we've been going through that through an NDP or a PC or a liberal government so really you know although technologically and the names and faces have changed it's the same conflict how how do we avoid this yeah i think i think i think you raised one point that i think is interesting I want to say at the outset that there hasn't been a major uh, high school uh, walkout uh, since 22 years ago during the Harris government. And I I just want to say right here, before you get going there, Charles, and and again, you may be right with the union and such with high schools, but those of us who have families and watch the kids go from grade one to grade six are are, are experiencing either way. So whether it's this union, that union, or the other union, the fact is a family, and even as a student, we've been living this for 40 years now. Yeah, but the one point you make, which is really critical, and why it may resonate with history, is the notion that Unions of all different sorts uh, talk about the quality of the service or what's good for, in this case, the students, and it's really about compensation. Uh, that, that may be a resonating uh, communication uh, understanding from the past, but that's not what's at play now. That's not what's at play right now. And the minister is feeding to your perception. Uh, you're kind of drinking from uh, you know, his comms Kool-Aid. Uh, with respect to the fact that this is about compensation. And it's not. And your listenership, uh, who, who experience through their networks uh, and their neighbors, know there's a reason why all the unions have had 95% to 97% approval for strike action if necessary. This is unprecedented. And we're not talking about teachers who are, uh, you know, wild-eyed uh, lefties or righties. They just represent the people of Ontario and they know that what's happening to the quality of education in the classroom is different. So it's like the little boy who cried wolf. Well, this time I can guarantee you, uh, and your listeners uh, who have these networks of teachers and students all over Ontario, uh, not just the Hamilton area, they know that the lived experience of the last six months is very different and uh, debilitating regarding uh, our progress as a, as a province uh, has been known for high quality education. Are we surprised that we're are we surprised that we're there, Charles, after fifteen years of liberal rule and Dalton McGinty, the teacher's premier, who let's remember, walked the plank and, and that's how we got Kathleen Wynn. Uh, you know, when yeah, he well, when listen, he demand, listen, when he right? was asking for them for to t- to take a pause. So uh, again sorry, go yeah. ahead. Well you know that I was uh you know, Scott, that not only was I a former deputy yeah. who's nonpartisan, uh, you said um, Premier McGinty accepted our advice uh, regarding uh, full-day uh, kindergarten, uh, and that has had a major impact on the quality of education in terms of school readiness. That said, in his, uh, in his dealing in his latter days uh, with, the, uh, with the teachers and the unions and everything else, uh, he, uh, you know, even though he's a mild-mannered guy, I think they took a harder line regarding how to do this than they should have. But let me tell you that I... Have Maybe been, he was just faced with reality, though, Charles. Well, he, you know, he, he does, uh, these are always difficult circumstances. But I can tell you one thing. Uh, in, in, I, have, I have worked with and served under and advised governments of all three political stripes. And uh, since July 1st, 1977... Uh, when I began my work in Ontario as obviously a teenager. Uh, 
And I have never, ever seen a minister of the crown show such disrespect, uh, show on a minute-by-minute basis his inability to uh, add one and one. And if you added up a list of all the misinformation and fabrications of uh, Mr. Bischoff, who represents OSSPF, and you put in his scorecard of misinformation, uh, which equals probably close to zero, compared to this Minister of Education, it's startling. And he needs to just put away his uh, can of kerosene, tone it down a little bit, and stop being a machine of, uh, of misinformation, because that's a problem. He needs to tone it down, or he needs to be replaced, and then we have to get back to the bargaining table. Uh, I just had a professor that said that he was doing quite a good job of communicating uh, <laughs> the, the position of the government and, right. and, and, and trying to break this all down. You know, right. like, you know, I, I'm just, you know, the public is caught in the middle of this. And, you know, one side says one thing and one side says another. And oh, nobody God. nobody knows who to believe other than the sense that we all have kids. Yeah. And, 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 and at the end of the day, it's the parents that have to look after those kids. So you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a professor of human development at the Ontario Institute for Studies Education. I am a person who lives and dies by evidence. I listen even though it's hard to listen to uh, somebody who's talking so fast. Uh, it's hard to keep up. And the misinformation is breathtaking just in the last 72 hours. So, you know, it's nice that, uh, that he thinks uh, he probably is a partisan. Uh, he's presenting the case of the government really Actually, well. he's on the left. The prop <laughs> well, is on the left, but I'll, I digress. That's not important well, now. Well, they, well that, that's fine. Uh, but if you want to have the two of us on your show... No, I don't know. At the same time, I'd be delighted to have the conversation. No, I, you know, Charles, obviously you're incredibly passionate about this, and you know your stuff. I mean, I, you know, I don't mean any disrespect in that way. But again, um, you know, I, I, I can't get past the fact that this has been going on for 40 years. And I'm asking you, is there a better way for teachers unions and the government of the day to handle this? Because again, whether, you know, uh, you want to identify with this specific government over time, it's been the same thing all along. And I know it's different this time in class sizes, but again, uh, class size has been an issue through many of these negotiations over the past years. Is there a better way? Is there a better way to arrive at a conclusion? I guess is well, what I'm we saying. We always need to look uh, at every situation once the dust settles. We have to look at who did what, when, to whom, uh, to see if, as you pointed out in our last couple conversations, is there something else that could uh, could work uh, more effectively. But I think, you know, the moral of the story for me is you got We got to follow the evidence. We got to be very, very clear uh, about how this is different from everything that's gone behind so that we don't let, uh, you know, history and what it was, for better or for worse, uh, suggest that the same things are at play right now. And that's my point. I just, I'm just following the evidence. My passion is about uh, uh, the need for us to continue improving quality of education in Ontario, whatever we do. That's all I live and breathe for other than more important things with family. But when you get to a scenario, whether it's one form of government or another, whether it's those on the left, the center or the right, and we all seem to end up in the same place or the threat of the same place, you know, I don't 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 know. I mean, like I had the education minister or sorry, not the education minister, the second uh, uh, Harvey Bischoff on. And he said, well, they're all out to raid the education system, which, you know, I, I just find that I just find that aggressive. 
You know, well, I, I think, you know, you know I, I'm critical of politicians. I'm the yeah. first one to say that, uh, yeah. whatever the political stripe. But I'm thinking at the end, everyone's trying to do the right thing here. No, and, and, to sorry, me, and to me, and to me, and to me, it just yeah. sounds like yeah. each one, you know, each each government of the day is, is, is having to endure right. the same thing, except now it's even worse. Scott, I, I you know, I, I know we're running out of time, but I can't let it hang that this government is trying to do the right thing. Uh, we don't have time to talk about the environment, social services, uh, education, and how evidence doesn't matter. The Auditor General's report regarding the nature of uh, the double counting and the double talking uh, on, on the government's climate change is just a proxy for a whole bunch of things, which has been uh, the, uh, the dumbing down of public services in Ontario. And there's a way of uh, spending less money. Uh, there's a way of reinvesting. Uh, in the private sector, if you wanted to to start uh, improving things, you wouldn't start shutting down everything by next Tuesday. In every single file of this government, they've messed it up because they've gone too fast and they're trying to meet uh, an artificial uh, a budget uh, target. And now they're having to walk it all back uh, because they don't know how to run the pop stand. So I, I can't agree with you about the fact that this government, like all governments, is trying to do right the right thing. Governments will always try to do the right thing, and they'll make some mistakes. This is something that's unprecedented. I've never seen it uh, before at this level, and uh, the public at large, uh, I think, gets it. So I, I just can't agree with you that this government is trying to do the right thing. Uh, should uh, the unions be more tempered in how they address this all, in the way they well, handle Dal- Dalton McGinty, in the way well, well, we, we've handled let's, these let's, last scenarios? Let's, let's, just, let's just forget for a moment. Uh, you know, previous governments and Dalton McGinty, you know, my favorite premier of all time, I'm uh, absolutely uh, uh, unabashed about saying is William Grenville Davis, who lives on Main Street in Brampton. Uh, he understood how to do the right thing. He made a few mistakes here and there. I would agree. But he's committed to a better future uh, for the many rather than the few. And this particular government, it's unprecedented. It's just unprecedented regarding... Uh, their inability uh, to basically follow the evidence. It is an evidence-free zone that's been created in Queens Park. So the passion you're hearing from me is somebody who for many, many years in Ontario since July 1st, 1977, everything I've done, along with the thousands and thousands of other uh, teachers and experts and parents and, and teachers, has tried to bring Ontario into the, uh, the, the prime spotlight of education in the global context. And we've done really, really well. We've got a lot more to do. But when I see things that bear no resemblance in fact or evidence uh, being done to our education system, uh, and I see it before, I see it every day, and I, and I listen to a fast-talking uh, a guy who, uh, uh, you know, who basically goes, he's never walked past a, a podium or a microphone or a video camera that he hasn't fallen in love with. And if you listen to this guy, the misinformation is breathtaking. So he needs to tone it down. He needs to spend most of his energy talking to his premier and his cabinet colleagues about how to restore funding, not not regarding compensation for teachers, but funding that will bring class sizes back to where it was so that the great teachers of our province can continue doing everything they can to adapt to the diverse needs of fewer students 
uh, rather than an over uh, overburdened classroom. That's all I care about, and I, I'm not going to stand by and, and suggest that uh, what the union leader said was wrong, because in this case, this particular union leader at this moment in time is representing almost 100% of his teachers uh, and, and, and saying uh, the same things I'm saying. So I'm not, I'm not being pro-union as an end in itself. I'm just saying I listen to both sides, along with the other uh, representatives of the other teachers, and, I, and I, I basically come down on the side of what I see and what I know. That's it. And I really appreciate that there's a Scott Thompson who continues to care deeply about this. <laughs> uh, Charles, um, uh, <laughs> now I forgot my point. <laughs> that was my design. There you go. Uh, you know, again, I, I just I, I can't get over the fact that um, you know they 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 did the same thing in the past, and I know you can't compare uh, yeah. what has happened yeah. in the past, but at the end of the day, you also can't deny that there's been conflict between the Ontario Teachers Unions and the government of the day for 40 years. And I'm asking, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better way to arrive at this uh, salute or to arrive at a solution than, than going down the same road and, and saying the same thing about, again, you know, we can go back and pull up logs of, uh, of the Dalton McGinty days and, and hear the same thing. So is there a better way to do this? Well, we ought to turn our attention to it. Um, I think we need to set aside this as uh, at least I want to set aside this as part of our ongoing conversation as different from what's gone on in the past. At the same time, I really respect this is the second time we've discussed, uh, you've raised the question of, is there a better way? And I think it's deserving of attention. And I think, uh, uh, you know, colleagues uh, where I work and others who are interested in governance, we ought to put our heads to this. Uh, but we can't, you know, it's, it's going to be a very tricky conversation uh, because there are those who believe that... Um, you know, there shouldn't be things like the right to strike. And uh, we have to figure out something whereby uh, there is conflict. Conflict will arise. Once in a while in our society, there are things worth fighting for. And there's nothing uh, more important to fight for, uh, from my vantage point, regarding uh, uh, a better society than high-quality education from the earliest years, uh, you know, right through college and university and beyond. Uh, because that affects, uh, you know, our health outcomes and everything else. Uh, that said, um, uh, you know, we have to figure out ways of, of making sure that we can uh, get the yes um, more credibly. But once in a while, once in a while you run into uh, a particular uh, approach to life, which has no vision of the future, uh, which campaigned um, on, on absolutely nothing, and is making it up as they go along, uh, evidence-free, and, you know, I, I'm not sure whatever we can design, Scott, you and I and other experts on governance, uh, will ever be able to uh, inoculate ourselves against the kind of belligerent uh, misinformation and disinformation. Well, I guess, Charles, a good way to, to start is to ask how we got here. And is that 15 years of no, liberal no, no, rule? No, we got here, sorry. We got here starting... Uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Charles, i got to let you go. We're out of time. All right, all right. Charles Pascal's been with us, and I appreciate your passion and always love having you on, Charles. I love having Great the discussion. Uh, Professor Charles Pascal on Applied uh, Psychology and Human Development and Special Advisor to the Dean University of Toronto and has had many years in the educational system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, 40 years ago, 
Uh, a concert stampede at a Who concert in Cincinnati ended up with 11 people dead and many others injured. Uh, 40 years later, the Who is returning to Cincinnati. You might remember this if you are old enough to do so. Uh, December 3rd, 1979, uh, there was an issue in regard to general admission seating where basically you show up first come, first serve, and they open the gates and they all go in. And this really did change the way people viewed uh, rock concerts uh, after that as many stadiums and, and organizations and such banned general admission seating because of the rush to get in and such and moved to uh, selected seats uh, as a way of uh, selling. So certainly a, uh, an event that not only uh, was catastrophic for the city of uh, Cincinnati, but also went on to, to lead uh, change. So the Who will perform uh, Thursday, April 23rd, 2020 at the BB&T Arena at Northern Kentucky University. A portion of the proceeds from the concert will be donated to the PEM Memorial Scholarship Fund at Finneytown High School. Uh, that was created in honor of three Finneytown students who died in the crush of the fans on the uh, Riverfront Coliseum Plaza. To talk more about all of this, someone who has a, uh, a personal connection to all of this, Fred Wittenbaum, and he is with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and you? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. It's It's been very, very busy for the last three and a half months, and, and as of 11.01 a.m. on December the 3rd, the real work kicks in. So uh, tell us what your connection is to all of this. My connection is the, the PEM Memorial was founded in December, well, was, the idea was founded in December 2009 and became a reality in uh, August of 2010. There are six of us that are on the committee that, that oversee this every year. Uh, five of us are alumni from Finneytown High School, John Hutchins, Steve Bentz, both class of 1980, I'm class of 1983, uh, Walt Medlock is class of 1979. Marianne Medlock, his wife, is class of 1982. And Tony Hutchins, John's wife, is also involved. Our, our connection is a remembrance of our three friends that were lost December 3rd, 1979. Tell us what happened that night, your recollection of it all, how, how you well, found out. I was a freshman in high school. And keep in mind, in 1979, no cell phones, no internet, yep. uh, no immediate notification for anything. So... Basically, what happened was after the event occurred, and it was a tragedy in every sense of the word, you would find out people heard on the radio on the way home that something had occurred and you need to call home. And um, pretty much when you got home, you had to wait for the – it was the 11 o'clock news that would tell you on television. That was how slow yep. a time we were living in. And that's how the majority of people that were at the concert who had absolutely no idea this occurred found out was either on the radio coming home or on television when they got home or when they called their parents who were all freaking out, where are you? So you not at the show but knew friends that were? I was not at the show. Uh, I Yes, I knew a lot of people that were down there that night. The Who, uh, biggest rock band in the world, in 1979 uh, was huge in our high school uh, we probably had anywhere from 50 to 150 classmates down there that night our whole high school was 450 to 500 people mm. we were very disproportionately represented unfortunately with the loss of these three friends uh, but it was very important that we 
come together as a community to memorialize them, not relive it, remember them, and pay it forward with three scholarships each year, of which we've done 27 to date. We'll do 28, 29, and 30 in 2020. So uh, the PEM Memorial Scholarship Fund, talk a little bit more about that. That was created after the initial idea of the memorial. The memorial was a bench that is outside the Performing Arts Center at Finneytown High School. Hmm. We came up with the idea to move this forward to, to keep our friends' memories alive because all three of them were very active in the arts and music, and we wanted to pay that forward to the students of today. So three students every year graduating from Finneytown receive a scholarship, uh, going to college, majoring in the fields of, of music and or the arts. And the arts can run from culinary to virtually anything. Uh, and it's been a fantastic healing process for our entire Finneytown and greater Cincinnati community. We, we have an event first Saturday of December. Uh, the event for this year is December the 7th, this coming Saturday. It runs from 6 to 9 at Finneytown High School. Uh, we have over 350 RSVPs already. We anticipate there being between five and 700 people attending this year. Uh, the alumni has a band, a very active musical band. Hmm. that gets together every year, puts on about an hour-and-a-half show. Fantastic stuff. Uh, it's just a great, great place to come and heal. Take us back to 1979, and you know everyone heard of this tragedy and 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 what had happened that night. What was it like in that school? What was it like for the town to be a part of that and be so close to it? Well, 1979 is not 2019, and and school issues are an unfortunate part of today's world. Yeah. Uh, when the event happened, keep in mind it was during the week. The next day was school. And we did not have a full counseling staff. Uh, basically what happened is you came to school the next day and were told not to talk about it. And the, the hallways were like a... Uh, At that point, I'm guessing people were still probably finding out that there were members of the school that were there and that yes. had not survived. Yes. The ones, the ones that found out the night before, those people were absolutely devastated. Yeah. And when it was released more into the school itself the next day, it was very quiet. And imagine from 1979 for 30-some-odd years later, uh, they stayed very quiet. Hmm. And there was no real release or outlet for anyone. And this memorial has given the general community an opportunity to band together, feel a lot of love, and share their stories. And this documentary that was just released... Uh, really delves further into that. But it's been a great, great thing for the community and also for the WHO. It's been a very healing thing for Roger and Pete and their manager, Bill Kerbishley. Talk about how this all came about, uh, about getting the band involved. You reached out to the band. What was that process like? Um, We reached out to the band. We started seven years ago with a very simple email to their uh, management office over in London. We have some very nice local people here who uh, helped us gain access to that office. Got a wonderful woman, a wonderful young woman on the phone in the management office who listened to me and uh, said, I, I'll put your email on, on Bill Kerbishley's desk. And I got a call from Bill not too long after that saying that the WHO would like to become involved with this process. And at our third memorial, 
uh, they put together a DVD for us uh, filmed in Pittsburgh at their show where Roger and Pete both spoke briefly in general to the Cincinnati community, which was played at our third memorial and then basically buried, which is what they asked us to do. They did not want it released out into the public. Right. Um, moving forward, they've been involved with us all the way through up to the point where on July the 2nd, 2018, we were able to negotiate a uh, visit with Roger Daltrey as he was going to be in Dayton at the Phrase Pavilion. And uh, I was able to go pick him up with my son Jeremy at uh, Aviation Inc., the private airport just south of Dayton. We drove him and his personal assistant, Gordon, on the road. We drove them down to Finneytown High School. We arranged for th the three Finneytown families to be there so he could meet them. Wow. We arranged for three of our scholarship members, winners, to be there so he could also meet them. And then we arranged for Mike Simpkin, who was on the plaza that night, uh, to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him, which there is a video out on the Internet of all of this. But uh, Mike was given the opportunity where he, he took it to say to Roger, we never blamed the band. We, we never held you accountable for this. Hmm. And that was a solid moment. What was it like for Daltrey to be there? What was because they really they haven't said a lot about this since then. No, uh, they've never really publicly addressed. This no, I, I was trying to years. recall. I don't think they have. Have they? No, they've each put out uh, books. The books don't really address it per se. Um, when you watch the video, you'll see when Mike says that to him, Roger kind of recoils a little bit. And you can tell that he uh, that he wanted, you know, he, he needed to hear that. Uh, and it was a very cathartic thing for him. And the reason I say that is, is that every December the 3rd, I know this is fact, and I'll explain it, Roger mourns. Yeah. And so does Pete in his own way. But Roger sent me an email on December the 3rd, and he said, My thoughts are with you all today, Fred. May the world be kind to you all. What and would. Then, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. I, I responded back to him and, in essence, said to him, Hoping that the feeling of love we all have for you makes this day a bit brighter for you. Looking forward to the next time our paths cross. And he responded back and said, Thank you. That means a lot to me. I'm looking forward to seeing you all in the spring. That says it all. Uh, he said, meeting the parents was incredibly rewarding. It lifted a load. I can just imagine what that must have been like. Well, you know, wounds heal, scars fade, but they never go away. Um, the pain doesn't go away for anyone, uh, whether you're a family member, a survivor, um, someone who was down there and, and wasn't involved directly, or a community member. We all suffered in our own way, and we all grieve in our own way. And it's, it's been a very tough, long process, but the healing that's out there right now, because of what these guys have done, and because of what the people, the survivors that have given their stories, laid themselves bare on, uh, on televised media, it's, it's given a whole new meaning to all of these people being able to share their stories and, and heal. And uh, what we had done was once the band agreed to to sit down and tell their story, which they hadn't done in 40 years. Uh, we were able to arrange uh, with the local Channel 9 anchor here, Tanya O'Rourke, who was a Finneytown graduate, 1987, the lead anchor. We flew out to Seattle um, to meet with the band at uh, T-Mobile Park where they were playing a concert. They gave her basically about an hour each 
three mm. hours total, and they told their story. Roger first, Pete second, and Bill Kerbishley third. What would we have not seen this? What would uh, what can you tell us of that? What what was it from their perspective? Well, there's a couple of interesting parts to it. Um, Bill Kerbishley was on the pla- on the plaza that night. He was the one that got called up, and he witnessed what went on there, and. How do you how do you phrase it? His life trajectory was altered yeah. that night. Hmm. Um, he made the decision when confronted by the fire department and police people saying we need to shut this down and they need not to perform. He he fought with them. Um, Roger would say he had his rounds with him uh, that they should play and they should keep going on. And uh, there's disagreement amongst the three of them, as to whether that was the right decision or not. Hmm. But, you know, three individuals, three different opinions. Uh, the band did not know what happened uh, until after the set was complete. Uh, they came off stage. He told them to go back out and play two encore songs and something terrible would happen. Hmm. Uh, it's hard to believe they haven't returned since then. It's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. They they Roger has been here a couple of times individually, mm-hmm. um, but the band itself has never come back. And so how I significant is this show that will be April 23rd, 2020? Scott, it's the biggest thing to hit 50 and above age group hmm. rock and rollers probably for the rest of our lives. It, it is massive. The The social media has gone crazy uh, the WCPO website crashed the night of the documentary because you could view it online. Uh, the ticket sales have been, I mean, by the by the time the, the general public on Friday at 10 o'clock gets a chance to purchase their tickets, they're going to be gone. Yeah. I mean, this is going to sell out in a matter of minutes. It'll and be fascinating. To, is this going to be documented, do we know? It is going to be. Yeah, that's good. Yes. It'll be fascinating it, it to see. To It'll be fascinating to see the response and, and how they address it if they do on stage. Well, it's going to be very, very different than a normal concert because I think personally you're going to hear the band talking a lot to the fans and to the families, and uh, it's going to be a much more conversant type of a situation than a normal concert where a band would just come out and play their music and and go on their way. Are there people that are feeling negative about this? Are there people that saying, yeah, you know what, this shouldn't happen? Well, you're you're always going to have some Internet trolls here and there, but... I haven't seen anything negative about this at all. Nothing. And my social media has been inundated with this for the last three days with thousands and thousands and thousands of comments and not not one negative comment that I've seen. It's everybody wants these guys to come back. My post that night was very simple. They're coming <coughs> Excuse me. They're coming home. Wow. Uh, I'm getting goosebumps just listening to this story. Uh, Fred Wittenbaum has been with us, member of the PEM Memorial, Finneytown High School alumni in Cincinnati, uh, in honor of everything that happened way back when, December 3rd, 1979. Uh, a series of three scholarships have uh, been created. Uh, Roger Daltrey uh, also making an appearance to, uh, to address all of this, and now coming full circle with uh, a concert Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, at the BB&T Arena at Northern Kentucky University.
Uh, what an incredible story, Fred. I, I, I just can imagine the emotion that's going to be flowing uh, through the town that night. And uh, congratulations and great work in, in your part in trying to make all of this happen. Uh, it certainly says something about uh, the people at Finneytown, that's for sure. Good luck. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. You guys have a great day. I appreciate it. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.